kind of get us caught up, and I think it's important we do this every time. First of all, it's not that big a deal because there's only four chapters in this book, but because of the way that Paul writes and the way this book is laid out, he's always piggybacking on something that he started in a thought. And so I think it's helpful we kind of see how it all flows together. So obviously, if we go back through the book again, uh, in chapter 1, after the customary greetings, uh, he starts addressing the Philippians directly, and he, of course, talks about how that uh, they were such a help to him, uh, referred to them as partners or fellowship in verse 5, and because of that, come on in. But after um, discussing the fact that they had helped him in so many times when he was preaching in other congregations, uh, even now when he was in prison, uh, they sent him to his need, and he was thanking them for that. And then he, of course, pointed out to them how, that, uh, how much he longed to be with them. It's a very emotional message in that he's just longing and longing to be with the church at Philippi. There's no other place he'd rather be. And then he begins the discussion after talking about how much he longs to be with them. He, that causes him to think about the fact that um, they had asked about his condition. Uh, they had sent somebody, that's part of their fellowship, and uh, this person, Epaphroditus, evidently brought a letter. And him being there and the fact that they, that they helped him and the fact that they sent him a letter caused him to long to be with them. And so that brings him to his next point. What was in the letter? Well, evidently in the letter they asked how he was doing. They understood that he was in prison, and that can't be a very pleasant thing. And um, they wanted to check on him, and he wanted to make sure they understood that even though uh, he was being held uh, uh, captive, uh, he was in bonds. That didn't stop the the blessings that God had bestowed upon him through Jesus Christ, and the gospel was being spread. And not only was the gospel being spread, but because of the fact that it was being spread, uh, that it was causing others to talk about Jesus, and that's a good thing. And talking about others talking about Jesus, that got him thinking about the fact, well, there are some people in town here who are talking about Jesus, but they're also talking bad about me. And he proceeded to say that there were some preachers there in that town that were because of jealousy and because of their own self-promotion and politics. They were talking bad about him, but he said that really doesn't matter because the gospel's being preached. And that's all that he cares about. And um, then... Uh, that led him to rejoice in the fact that the gospel was being preached, and that caused him to really think about all the different things that he had to rejoice about. And so that made him think about his own salvation and how that he had their prayers and how that he had the help of Jesus Christ and um, how that he had an earnest expectation and hope that no matter what happened to him, whether he was put to death or whether he was going to live, um, the main thing that mattered was that Jesus Christ was going to be magnified. And that caused him to go into a discussion about if he had to make a decision now, whether or not he was going to stay here on earth and continue to live, if Caesar let him go, or if he was going to be put to death, which would he choose right now? And we spent a lot of time talking about how he, he dealt with this conundrum. And after he added up all the different uh, things on the pros and cons of it, he finally decided uh, that it would be best for him to stay here because of the church at Philippi. Uh, he thought that the church at Philippi needed him. So it's almost like he had a revelation. He said, this is the way it's going to be. I expect to be released because I'm going to go get to see you. And so that puts his mind on the church at Philippi. And he begins to talk to them about the fact that the thing that he wants most for them, and what I believe is the most important thing with any church, as far as it growing and as far as it uh, being the kind of church that God wants it to be, 
He wants to make sure that that church is always a unified church, a church that's in unity, that's in the proper kind of fellowship. And so he tells them um, how important that is for him. And um, chapter 2 is really the continuation of that same thought. Uh, I think all of us are aware of the fact that when Paul wrote the church at Philippi and they received this letter from him, it was not divided up into verses and chapters. It was just a letter like we get a letter from somebody today. Somebody thousands of years later divided it up into chapters and verses to make it easier to study. But when Paul wrote it, it was just one letter. And for some reason, Hoover divided it up into chapters, caused us to have a chapter division here with chapter 2, but that's not where it should be because he's continuing his thought that he began in verse 27 about uh, being unified together. And he's continuing that thought now when we get into chapter 2 in these next four verses. Uh, He's really stressing this point that above all things he wishes for the church at Philippi is that they be united. He wants them to be a church that's full of unity and have that right kind of spirit. Um, So that's basically what he's going to be dealing with in these four verses. Um, Anybody ever heard the phrase, united we stand, divided we fall? All right. All right. It's kind of like a motto for our nation. Um, During the Civil War time, uh, the premise was that if we would divide as a nation, then we've got a problem. You know, we we got to stick together. Um, But what's interesting, as famous as that particular quotation is, it has its uh, origins in Aesop's fables, in the story of the four bulls and the lion. I don't know if you've ever heard that fable or not. But the story is there were four bulls and a lion that were traveling together, and um, the lion wanted to eat the bulls, but he knew that there was no way in the world that he could eat those bulls if there was four of them because they'd just gore him to death. And so what he'd do is they were walking down the road, he'd wait a little while until one of the bulls kind of got behind the others, and he'd start whispering in that bull's ear about those other three bulls. He kept saying, man, those bulls are full of bull. No, no, he'd say, tell some bad things about them. He'd just say... They're just talking bad about you. You don't believe the stuff they've been telling me. And that make that bull all mad, and he'd catch up with the other group, and they'd ask, what are you so mad about? He'd say, oh, I'm not mad about anything. And then another bull would fall a bit further behind, and he'd, that lion would whisper into that other bull's ear and about the other three bulls and they were, how bad they were talking about him and whatnot. And, and then he'd go up, and another one fall back, and you know how the rest of the story. Eventually, the four bulls said, I don't want to have anything to do with you all, and they separated. The lion picked them off one at a time. And the motto at the end of that fable is, united we stand, divided we fall. And that's, you know, where, that, where it all started. But the premise is the same thing. Um, our motto for this nation, we actually have a motto. That's an official motto of our nation. Does anybody know what it is? I'd be surprised if you did. What is it, Karen? Yeah, but what is the actual Latin? E pluribus unum. It's on our money. It means out of many, one. And what the idea there is that our nation has just a diverse, uh, originally it was diversity in, in states, it was diversity between the merchants of the north and the planters of the south, it's all the different religions, it's all the different uh, incomes, it's everything, but we all come together united to form this great nation. And so our forefathers picked e pluribus unum, out of many one, uh, as our motto. And... If anything should be that way, and if anything we should understand that it has to be that way, it's the Lord's church. 
United we stand when it comes to the Lord's church. Uh, divided, uh, we're not going to accomplish anything. And um, the church, e pluribus, e pluribus unum, works for that too because we have all kinds of different backgrounds. We have all kinds of different cultures. We have all kinds of, uh, of, of different uh, areas that we came from. Uh, some of us have more knowledge than others. Some of us have more experience. Some of us have been Christians longer, whatnot. But we all come together and become one. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, We are one body. And uh, that especially applies to the Lord's church. We are just one body. So you can see why uh, Paul puts such an emphasis on this section because um, as we're going to see in just a little bit, that this will bring him the greatest joy he can experience is that they're united the way that they're supposed to be. Okay, so we're going to be, he wants to really emphasize this. And I think this is something that we need to emphasize because, and this includes myself, we don't always get this right. Uh, sometimes we let differences between us uh, uh, cause there to be a barrier when there shouldn't be a barrier. Uh, sometimes um, uh, the church doesn't grow that the way it should because we don't have the cohesiveness that we should have. Sometimes there's not the love that should be there because we aren't unified the way that we, we should. So uh, this is some very important stuff, and he thought it was so important that he has, um, if he's given them any kind of encouragement, if you will, in this lesson, as far as getting close to sounding preachy, it's this section right here, uh, because he really wants them to understand this. And so he says, we'll just read all four verses together, and then we'll go through it and start breaking it down. He says, if there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than himself. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now let's start breaking this down. And maybe some, explain some things that's not as clear in the King James as it might be in some other translations. But the key to this whole section, these, these four verses, is right there in the middle of the very first verse of the very first sentence where he says, in Christ. Okay? That's the theme here, being in Christ. And um, which is a good thing to think about. If we're going to be in Christ, what do we need to be? We need to be one. When Jesus was about to be put to death and he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane there in John chapter 17, his prayer, think about all the things Jesus could pray. He's about to be put to death. He says in verse 22, I pray that they all be one as you and I, Father, Will they be one? So the world will know that you have sent me. So this is all about being in Christ. And if you want to be in Christ, as I heard Michael whisper, you need to be baptized, and that's true. But in the context of what we're talking about here is, if we're going to be in Christ, then we've got to do these things. Because that's what it means to be in Christ, because Christ wants all of us to be one. King James uses the word if here. I'm just curious, anybody having a different word for if? It's really not a good word here. I mean, the King James had the, and other translators have the right idea. But when we think of the word if, what do we usually think of? We use it as what? Well, if something is the case, then this was going to be the case. Or, or, if, or if, the, if this outcome is the way it is, then this will be the outcome. 
Well, that's not really a good translation of this word in the Greek. It's more like the word since. In other words, it's not if this is the case, it's since this is the case. Okay? And the reason why it's translated the way that it is, they're trying to drive at the point that if you are in Christ, then obviously you would be doing this. You know, yes, absolutely, absolutely. And that's why that needs to be brought out. Because if makes it sound conditional. Paul is saying, this is the case. This is the case. Because if you're in Christ, this is the case. All right? And that's so important in verse 1. And he uses uh, if, what, four different times there in that first verse? But it should be, since there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, since any comfort of love, if since any fellowship of the Spirit, since any bowels and mercy. His point is, if you're in Christ, then this is the case. It's not, it might happen if you're in Christ. This is actually the case. Because he's telling us everything that we get to enjoy in Christ. And if we get to enjoy these things in Christ, then those are some things we should be unified on. Okay? We're all enjoying the same thing. We're all in this together is the idea. This is the case. It's not, what if it was the case? It's not if God loved you. It's not if... Uh, you had encouragement. It's not that. You do have it if you're in Christ. And so that really needs to be uh, brought out. So, and by the way, he says, therefore, if there be therefore, it points out, points right back to the fact that he's still talking about the same thing he was talking about. He was talking about how he wanted to be unified at the end of chapter 1. Well, here's what I want you to know about being unified. Therefore, if there be any, or, or since there are, consolations in Christ, or consolation in Christ. Here's the first thing he wants them to think about, about being in Christ. The King James Version uses the word consolation, but there's a better word I think you probably have. What you got? Encouragement. Um, the word encouragement, you can have that. There may be some translations that have the word exhortation there. The word in the Greek is a wonderful word. And uh, once again, translators really don't know how to translate it, but it's the exact same word that you find in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, where uh, John says, My little children, I write these things unto you that you sin not, but if any man sin, he have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Lord. That word advocate, paraclete, is the exact same word. So that kind of gives it a whole new meaning. Now, that's something to console us. That's why the King James Version used it. That's why it's encouraging, and that's why that translation uses that. And somebody else might have exhortation there, because uh, that is something that exhorts us. But don't miss the point of what's going on. Why is it consoling? Why is it encouraging? It's saying we have a paraclete. Because of Jesus Christ, we have a paraclete. One thing we all have together, we have the same advocate standing before God, Oh, and in the throne room of God, pleading our case. That ties us together, okay? Look at the picture he's trying to paint for us. Then he says, since any comfort of love. Um, I don't know about you, but it's pretty comforting to know that God loves me. He loves me so much he sent his only begotten son to die for me. But you know what? John 3.16 didn't say just Jim. It said the whole world, didn't it? And we've got all that in common. We have an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ the Lord, the righteous one. 
And it's all because of the same love that we experience that God had bestowed upon us by this great gift. And so we've got Jesus in heaven, backed by the love of God. Now look how this flows into the next thing. Since there is the fellowship of the Spirit. Now see what he's done here. He talks, off, talks first of all about having an, an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ. We all have that if we're members of the church. It's all based upon the love of God and Christ's love for us. Then he brings up something very important that kind of ties it all together, why this is the case. And Paul uses the phrase, the fellowship of the Spirit. Now what in the world is the fellowship of the Spirit? Thinking in the same way that Paul is thinking. What is he wanting us to think about now? What's that? All right, coming together. All right, we come together for worship. But what what about the Spirit? Remember, fellowship means to be in partnership with, means to have in common. Uh, When we have a fellowship meal, that's a common meal we have that shows uh, our commonality, if you will. And so he's saying that we're all in this together in the Spirit. And he's talking, there's a big S there, and that's probably the correct translation. There's some that do have it in a small S, but we're talking about the Holy Spirit here. How does that tie into everything else that he said when he talks about having an advocate in heaven, and he talks about this all is predicated upon the love of God? What has happened? All right, well, one in him, but how, how did we get there through the Spirit? All right, very good. All of y'all are right. Let me put it this way. Um... Romans 10, 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not heard? And how, should they, um, how can they believe on him and, um, if they have not heard? And how shall they hear him without a preacher? And you get down to verse 17, it says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. In order for a person to become a Christian, what's the first thing they got to do? They got to hear, because that leads them to have faith. All right, where does that hearing and faith come from? The Word, which is what? Given to us by the Spirit. Okay. Now, after we have listened to the Word and we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that causes us to change our life or repent and be willing to confess that He is indeed the Son of God. We come to that very first time the gospel was preached there in Acts chapter 2. And Peter said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know surely that God hath made the same Jesus whom he crucified, both Lord and Christ. And it says when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter told them to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins, and they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I can't do a discussion what that gift is. Because there's some varied opinions about that, but we all got it, whatever it is, okay? That's not the, this is not the class for that. But what I want you to understand and appreciate, that it started with the Spirit, and our salvation as far as uh, becoming a Christian involves the Spirit. And then as we live the rest of our Christian life, we've got the gift of the Holy Spirit that, at least we know, intercedes for us with groanings when we don't know what we're going to pray about. We've got that going for us at least. Now, here's what Paul's wanting us to think about. 
We have an, all have the same advocate in heaven. It's all predicated upon the same love, and we all got here the same way. It started by studying this book. It produced fruit, and we became Christians. And the same Spirit is sustaining all of us still today. And so he's trying to make us think once again about the commonality that we have. This is all the oneness that we have together. We're all in the same boat, if you will. We're all together. We're all in the same pew. We've got the same advocate, Jesus Christ. We've got the same Father's love. And we all became Christians the same way by listening to what the Spirit told us through this Word. Okay? So, uh, the next thing he says, after saying since there is um, a paraclete in Christ, since we have the comfort of love, since we have the fellowship of the Spirit, uh, the King James uses some way archaic words here, but he says, since there are bowels and mercies. Uh, what would be bowels and mercies? All right, tenderness and compassion. Uh, some uh, translations may have affection and compassion. Uh, some might have tender mercies. All right. Now, if you think about mercy and compassion, what does that think, make you think about? In the same mindset, think, think like Paul's thinking, what he's driving at, using the same theme he started in this verse. What would tie this now all together? You've got Jesus Christ, you've got God, you've got our conversion. Michael, what? Salvation predicated upon, all right? It's based upon the mercy and the compassion of God, or we can call it grace. We all experience the same grace. I would not be who I am today without the grace of God. You would not be who you are today without the grace of God. All of us are where we are as far as God's plan of salvation because of God's tender affection and mercies or His compassion. As Karen mentioned, we didn't earn it. God doesn't have to do this for us. God, there's no, nothing that, you know, for those of you who were here Sunday and heard my sermon, you know, God's justice demands that we all die. Now, thankfully, there's loves over there, but still there's no, nothing that says he has to do this other than that he's a God of love. So now think about the picture he has painted before us. He has put, uh, we could put the word Jesus. We could put the word God. We could put the Spirit all based upon His grace. The reason why all of us are Christians, and the reason why we're all of this together, is because of Jesus, because of God, because of our obedience to the Spirit as far as the plan of salvation is concerned, and it's all hinged upon the fact of the grace of God. Now, I don't know if I did a well, good enough job with that for I explain what Paul had in mind, but this is what he wanted them to see at the church at Philippi. We have more things in common than we have differences. That's his point. If we're in the Lord's church, we have more things that we have in common than we have differences. We all have an advocate. We all have a God that loves us. We have all obeyed the same spirit. And it's all because God cared enough about us and had enough compassion and mercy that he put his grace upon us. Okay. Paul is basically saying, if, if that's all there is, that should be enough to make us as close as we can possibly be. Yes, great. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Uh, Paul reminds us in um, Galatians 3 and verse, uh, I might mess it up, 27 or 28, that, there, that in Christ Jesus there's neither male nor female, there's neither bond nor free, but uh, all are one in Jesus Christ. And um, you see the 20, verse 27 28, I can't think off the top of my head right now, but anyway, but Paul wants to make sure we understand and appreciate the fact uh, that we're all together. I said Ephesians 4 and verse 1 makes the point that we are all in one body. And um, the reason why we're in that one body is because of Jesus Christ, God, the Holy Spirit, and the grace that was behind it all. But notice what he says next. I don't want to leave this unless there's a question. Yes, Karen. Well, he is. He is reading a rhetorical question, but we lose it when we use the word if. Because, right. And he is, the, that's the reason why the, the translators use the word if, because they understand and appreciate that it's a rhetorical question. He's stating something that is true. He's saying, obviously, this is uh, true. He does the same thing in Romans chapter 8 when he talks about um, if, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, obviously, the answer to that is there's no other answer to it. It's not really a question. It's a statement of fact. Um, but, he, but sometimes we miss that. And so the emphasis really is that this is the case. And sometimes we lose that when we think of the word if. But it is a rhetorical if. But a lot of times we don't understand a rhetorical if. All right, anything else? Yes, great. That's right. That's right. If there ever is an if, 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 if you're this, then what's going to happen next has to be the case. Okay? And Paul's good about making uh, lesser to the greater arguments. And he's doing a little bit of that here. Um, any other questions or comments? But he's laid the groundwork, as, as Karen already said, for what he's going to say piggyback on here next. And everybody else has talked about. But before he gets to his point, he wants to make sure that they understand how happy this is going to make him if they understand and appreciate the fact that they should be unified. He says in verse 2, Fulfill ye my joy. Now, this is something that the text in the Greek says, this makes his cup overflows. This is more than just being happy. This is more than just being joyful. He says, this is an overwhelming joy. In other words, if there's anything that's going to make me happy, when it comes to the church at Philippi, it's going to be the fact that you're united as one church. i tell you right now, folks, there's nothing that makes me happier is when the church is united. When there's some type of division going on or there's people... Um, being cranky or grumpy about something or somebody decides they need to go to church somewhere else, I tell you, you ask Karen, that just upsets me to no end. Because I want us to be happy, I want us to be healthy, I want us to be unified. And nothing makes me happier as a preacher and as an elder is when everybody's in unity together. I think that's when the church is the strongest and we can do our best work. So Paul says, you know, I want you to fulfill my joy. Uh, that you were, first of all, he says, that ye be like-minded. Um, probably a better translation there than like-minded. What does somebody else have? It means the same thing, but somebody ha- usually has it a little bit better. You don't have better? Nobody has, nobody has one mind? I figure somebody would have one mind. What do you got? But the idea is being unified in our minds. That's the idea, Okay. And we use that term like-minded to mean that, but that's not a word we use as much as we do. But it's the idea of being uh, of one mind. And then he says, and having the same love. Now, he says same love, and he's making a play on words here. There's two kinds of same love he's talking about. He can do this with this word same. 
Now, what's one way that he says you should have the same love? What, what's the same love we should have? All right, it is agape type love, and, and before we leave that, understand that the love that he's talking about here, and almost always in the New Testament, the love they're talking about is not the butterflies feel good about somebody. Um, I can agape somebody to, to, to the very best of my ability. I may not like that person a whole lot, but I can agape them. And agape love means always putting that person's best interest ahead of mine, what's best for them. And that's the kind of love he's talking about. But what does he mean by same love? Jeff, I think I saw your hand. Oh, okay, you were... That was yours, I thought. All right, all right, very good. And that's, that's the key word, love. That's what really love is here. What are you going to say, Grady? All right, now, that, now we're going to blend in a little bit. We're getting onto the word I want us to think about, the word same. The kind of love we want is the kind of love we want everybody to go to heaven. That's agape love. That always has the other person's best interest. But we want to dissect that word same. And he's making a little play on words here with that word same. One way... As Grady says, is the idea that we want to have the same love that Christ had for us. Okay? Um, in fact, um, you'll bear with me just a minute. Uh, keep your finger there in Philippians because we don't want to lose the, the church at Philippi. But turn it over to 1 John. And um, look at what John says about love and especially love among members of the church. 1 John chapter 4, if I can find it in this Bible, and I believe we'll start, we'll just start at verse 11. Now listen to this, even if you didn't turn to it, listen to this, because this is some good stuff, and this is what Grady's talking about here. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father... uh, I'll tell you what, I'm getting ahead of myself. Go back to verse 7. That's where I really want to start it. Verse 7. I meant to finish at verse 11. Uh, Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth and not knoweth, uh, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. I got started on the verse I wanted to end on, but that happens sometimes. The point John is making is, and as what Grady just talked about, we should love one another the same way that God loved us. And if we want to know how much God loved us, what did he do? Gave us his only begotten son as propitiation of our sins. Now, that's the main thrust of this, but there's a second thrust in this. And it's the idea of the fact that um, if we're in all this together, then each and every one of us should have the same love. We should have the same love as God has for us and that Jesus has for us. That's what you might call vertical. But there's also the horizontal love that we should have for each other because of the fact that God loves us. There's the sameness. The same as God and the same with each other. And so uh, he's really want to drive that point home that uh, we now have 
the same like-mindedness. We need to have the same love. And then he has that word that the King James loves, being of one accord. Yes, great. Absolutely. Absolutely. You nailed it there. There's your vertical and there's your horizontal. Very good. Anything else? Didn't mean to step on anybody. All right. Then he says that we all be in one accord. All right. That's what the NIV says. It's literally the word having the same goal, which would be purpose. What is your goal? Your goal should be the same thing that's Christ's goal. Your goal should be the same thing that's God's goal. What is the purpose of the church? That should be your purpose. Uh, There's no way we can ever be the church that God wants us to be if we're fighting or we're divided or we're not united or we don't have anything to do with one another and whatnot. And um, so, once again, he emphasizes that we, uh, once again, be of all one-mindedness. Uh, the emphasis here is on unity. The, verse 2 deals with the fact that we uh, have all these things in common, and, and then verse 2 says if we have all these things in common, then we should all be the same as far as one another when it comes to the church. We need to have the same love, the same um, goal and purpose. Uh, need to uh, understand and appreciate that. So, man, after saying that, so I told you we get through four verses. After saying that, then, he he drives the point home and how this actually works. Here's where we're going to have to make some changes. It's real easy to say, well, you know, we have the same advocate, we have the same God, we have the same spirit, we have the same grace, and therefore we all need to be in one accord, we all need to have the same goal, need to have the same love. But here's how you do it, he's going to tell us. He didn't leave us hanging here. He didn't say, just here's some words, he tells us how to do it in verse 3. He says, let nothing be done. Now, King James has added be done. If you have it in your Bibles, it's in italics because it wasn't in the original. It's not anything with doing. It's about anything. Let nothing, is literally, let nothing through strife or vainglory. Um, strife is another way of saying troublemaking. Vainglory is a word we don't use very often, but what is it? Anybody know what that means? Anybody, who has the NIV? Conceit, all right, and what is conceit then? Vainglory and conceit, add those two together. What's that talking about? All right, it's all about you, it's your pride. It's what I want. Vainglory is the idea of me wanting glory. Hey, everybody look at me, but it's empty glory. That's what vainglory means. Uh, vain means empty. And as I told you before, I never understood why that thing that a woman looks at in the bedroom, puts on her makeup, is called a vanity because it's just empty. But anyway. I don't know if y'all realize it or not. Yes, Grady. Yeah, absolutely. It's not, it's, this is talking about you. You don't need to be this way because it's not about you. But instead, in verse 3, he says, but in lowliness of mind, and the idea there is being humble. Humble yourselves. Don't, don't, don't you think of yourself being something that you're not, but instead esteem others better than yourselves. And the point there is, in the church, other people are more important than you are. That's what it boils down to. Uh, Other people are more important than you are. It's not about getting your way. So many churches have been torn apart. So many people have left the church. All because 
they didn't get their way. And it's literally the case, it's either my way or the highway. And that's what this verse is talking about. It's not about you getting your way. It's about what is best for the whole group. What's going to make the church stronger? You getting your way? Or you not getting your way? Uh, what's, what's best for the whole? Uh, keep in mind what he's done here. He's talked about how we have all these unifying things and how that we all need to be working on the same goal. Well, the only way that's going to work is if we put away our foolish human pride and put away our own, our own selfishness and what I want and think about the, the group as a whole, which goes back to agape love, which says that's what's best for the, everybody. It's not what's best for me, whether I get my way or not. Aaron, you have your hand Absolutely. But yet we do have the mindset oftentimes that we feel slighted uh, because so-and-so didn't do something for me when that same person perhaps have never ever done that for the, somebody else. And, um, it's, but the point is, of course, is it's always about what's best for the group. Say even if you were slighted. Say somebody even treated you ugly. Well, I can get mad and be treated up. I feel like I was treated ugly and I can just go off and, and never have anything to do with that church again. Well, that's not going to accomplish a thing. All you've done is made the church smaller, and you've put yourself in a situation where you're going to have to start all over again. But verse 4, because we're running out of time, he, he emphasizes this by saying, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. In other words, he's saying quit looking at yourself and start looking at other people. It's not about you. It's about them. What is it that what is best for them? Um, it's, it's, it's stepping aside and letting them go first, if you will. Um, you're in line at the supermarket. This is a silly illustration, but this works. You're in line at the supermarket, and you see somebody behind you, and they have just a few items, and you have a whole buggy of things. And you're in a hurry, but you realize, you know, they have just a few things, and it'd be better for them, and it'd be a, a, a nice thing to do by letting them go ahead of you. Okay, now that may cause you to be later than you wanted to be, and, and lo and behold, they get in front of you, and she has a check that won't clear, and you have to stand there 30 minutes. Uh, that's the way it always works for me. <laughs> uh, but uh, I remember Roger having a lesson on Wednesday night, something about something like this. But it's always about putting others first. This whole, and we've got to close, but this whole book is about joy, about Christian joy. And this is trite, and you've probably heard it before, but if you put joy up as an acrostic, uh, and write J-O-Y, Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. That's what Paul's trying to take, tell us here. Uh, many years ago, there was a movie I enjoyed greatly. In fact, I'll be honest with you, I even cried in this movie. Uh, but it was a long time ago. Uh, no, that was, no, the flying monkeys scared me. They made me cry. I was scared. I hid from flying monkeys. But do you everybody remember the movie I, uh, Brian's Song? Brian's song is based upon the book that Gail Sayers wrote called I Am Third. And his point was it was Jesus first, others second, and I am third. And that's what Paul is talking about. That's how you have unity in the church is by saying I'm third. Everybody else, Jesus and everybody else is ahead of me. But we've got to stop. Our time is up. Thank you so much for your comments.